This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I'm happy to be speaking with Aaron Wright, a law professor at Cardozo School of Law, founder of Tribute Labs, who literally wrote the book on blockchain and the law. There is no better person than Aaron to help explain the purpose and power of decentralized autonomous organizations, also known as DAOs. Aaron, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So Aaron, in preparing for our interview, I went back and read Dan Lemire and Vitalik Buterin's early writing from 2013. Now, this is two years before Ethereum was launched. And what struck me was the idea of using smart contracts to organize people and capital were there from the very beginning. Aaron, as someone who was part of founding of Ethereum, I think a great place to start would be first, how does a lawyer end up in this frontier breakthrough technology? And second, what was the conversation like in those early days about what a DAO could possibly achieve? I do think this idea of using blockchain technology, not just to move around assets, but also to help serve as a layer to coordinate a whole bunch of activity has been something that has germinated inside of the Bitcoin and then subsequently Ethereum ecosystems for quite some time. I think Dan and Vitalik were particularly interested in this and it really kind of ignited a new way to think about blockchain technology, not just Bitcoin and moving around assets back and forth between one another over the internet in a secure way, but also how could we use this technology to pool assets, to have people work together and do something more productively. And that germ of an idea really did take hold in the Ethereum ecosystem. It played a prominent role in the Ethereum white paper where Vitalik outlined the concept around DAOs and some of the use cases related to DAOs. And I think we've seen that conversation continue to flourish over the past X number of years where we've begun to take these high-level concepts and begin to operationalize them. At the time, to the best of my recollection, really the concept around DAOs was how to build flatter organizations, organizations where different groups of people, regardless of where they're located, could work together, pool capital, and productively either deploy that capital or work together to build something bigger and better. I think that's kind of the core concept around DAOs. And whether that's done through more participatory means by having people vote and using blockchain-based systems to record those votes and tally those votes and synthesize that sentiment, or using something more feature-leaning like some sort of algorithmic system. Those were the two core concepts that people were thinking about. The DAOs have always played an outsider's role in the mindshare of the Ethereum ecosystem. And case in point there is just first substantive experiment with DAOs, the DAO itself, which was one of the first projects to emerge after Ethereum was launched. There was a bunch of different smart contract-based applications and dApps that people were developing, but the one that really broke through first was the DAO. 
And so I think a lot of people that were attracted to Ethereum were part of the Bitcoin ecosystem at that point in time, raised an eyebrow and said, oh, wow, we can really do some powerful things with this new technology. And I think over the past several years, we've seen the tooling, the developer ecosystem, and the technology around Ethereum continue to improve where DAOs are finally breaking through, at least in the crypto community, if not to a broader audience. For that germ and that white paper, that first called the DAO, that was about a year later, they were attempting to raise $500,000. They raised something like $150 million. There was a famous hack, which people can go read about, and then an SEC letter that said these are securities. And so the first DAO didn't go well. And I think what I'm really curious about is someone like you who's starting to take a very successful career and dedicated to the space. What made you stay with DAOs in the midst of all this, I'm assuming, very negative emotion? Why did I get involved with this? Many ways, lawyers are architects. They structure transactions, they help people manage risk, and they also help structure the flow of value. And so it's a core thing that lawyers think about all the time are these top-level issues related to how value flows, how to create different structures to accommodate the different risks, and also governance. That's a big thing of what lawyers think about, particularly if they're counseling in a more traditional setting, like a board of directors or working with clients that may have these difficult questions that emerge when different groups of people work together. And so for me, I was fortunate enough to fall down the Bitcoin rabbit hole pretty early, fascinated by this concept, uh, concepts around Bitcoin. And I think many folks in the ecosystem recognize that the DAO itself was an experiment. And even though it didn't wind up in a place that everybody was hoping, this core idea of having a different or and disparate group of people work together to pool capital, to begin to support projects was something that I've always found really fascinating. I think the notion that we can build more effective organizations, more efficient organizations is something that is probably one of the most important sets of questions that we as a society have to grapple with. I think for folks that have grown up during the time when I've grown up, we've seen failures on the part of different corporations, different governmental bodies, different organizations to be responsive to the needs of people. And to me, DAOs at the broadest level are hopefully going to be able to present new ways to do things or improve ways to do things so that we can begin to tackle these problems. But at its core, why have I been so focused on blockchain technology and Ethereum? I think it's because this idea that's embedded in blockchains is exceptionally powerful. How can we work together, even though we may live in different countries, even though we may live in different time zones, to build something that we can all reasonably rely upon in order to order our affairs, whether that's a store of value like Bitcoin or the broader use cases that we're seeing on Ethereum. I just think that that's one of the most important technical tasks that we can spend time with. And that's why I've, I've been so focused on it. And I do think at its core, Ethereum is a super fascinating system, not just because it's a more generalized version of Bitcoin and not just because it has this global virtual machine that you can execute smart contract code in, but fundamentally it's a rules engine and it's a protocol for rules and law. And that's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about both as a practicing lawyer and as an academic. So not surprisingly, it tickles me in all the right places. And so I think maybe a, a great next place to go would be where you have that tickling from the blockchain and the legal background. The Lao is formed several years after the launch of Ethereum. Tell me a little bit more about 
What was Allow? How did it come to be? And why was that the first major DAO you launched? We began to think about how we can begin to rebuild DAOs. And we weren't alone. There was a really great reboot of DAO experiments called the Moloch DAO, which had a slimmed down set of smart contracts. And it was able to pull capital and provide that to somebody that needed a grant or some amount of a donation to help perform some sort of technical task. So grants were provided to developers to work on a variety of different issues. And it seemed to be working really well. So unlike the DAO itself, which ran into a host of issues, both technical issues and also regulatory issues, it seemed like the Moloch DAO framework was holding up. It was able to provide a whole bunch of grants and pool several million dollars at the time in capital. And people were really having a nice time interacting and working together through this vehicle. And so to me, that was really a breakthrough moment. And I began to think about how to generalize that to not just deal with grants, but also to deal with investments and it occurred to me that the timing felt right if this underlying smart contract technology could hold up to begin to re-experiment with the original concept of the DAO, but to do so in a way that would aim to comply with US law. So my mental model for this was a little bit like what I imagine may have been the mental model for Brian and Fred when they started Coinbase. They weren't the first centralized exchange. There was earlier examples both in the US and in other jurisdictions like Mt. Gox. But I think their approach was to try to do it above board in the right way to prove out that digital assets mattered. And because of that, I think many of us have them to thank for the proliferation of digital assets in the US and across the globe. We were hoping to do the same thing with these DAO structures. So we launched it in April of last year. It was opened up to anybody that was accredited and went through a KYC process. They could pool capital. At the time, it was a minimum contribution amount of 120 ETH. And it was open to up to 99 members. We had about 65 members join and we pulled together a fair amount of Ether. And we began to press on this idea of having a group of folks that are deep in the space work together in a flat structure to begin to make investment decisions. A year and a half later, we backed over 100 projects and the Lao has continued to grow in different ways. And now it's a network of DAOs. There's about nine in total. $200 million worth of Ether has been contributed. It's kind of run the gamut of opportunities in the crypto ecosystem from NFTs via Flamingo DAO to DeFi with Neptune to the metaverse with Neon to a digital fashion DAO called Red and a play-to-earn DAO called Ready Player DAO. We've kind of been able to quickly map out and find folks that are really interested in particular topics inside of the crypto landscape in order to begin to try to support the best teams or acquire the best assets and hopefully do so in a way that's supportive of the ecosystem. When the Lao was first funded, was the purpose that became this DAO of DAOs, which is just amazing if that happened organically. But when you first or the people that came together to make the Lao come into existence, what was its original stated purpose? Were you thinking this is more like a venture capital vehicle and we're going to write checks and take equity? Or were you actually thinking, no, this will be a launch pad to help create other DAOs? It was both. Yeah. So the concept was to support projects in the space that the members of the Lao itself thought should be supported. Our core thesis was that people that had been deep in crypto, either from the beginning of Ethereum or even earlier since Bitcoin, were better able to predict what projects need support and which projects are likely going to continue to grow than more traditional Silicon Valley companies. Silicon Valley is the marvel of the world. 
but I think its track record when it comes to crypto is a little bit spotty. I think they've missed a number of opportunities and they don't always back the best teams. It passes through their filter for some reason. And so we thought we could do a better job. It looks like we can do as good, if not a better job, which is, I think, a testament to both the Dow model, but also the folks in this ecosystem. So that was kind of the first core mission. The second one was to let it grow organically, like we've seen in many open source and crypto projects. And if there was other opportunities, we could marshal together the support and capital to kind of move in there quickly. So NFTs is a good example. We were very early in on NFT opportunities. As an example, we were one of the first structures to back SuperRare, the large NFT marketplace, and a whole host of other great NFT projects. And during those conversations, and this was April of last year, we began to think deeply about collecting NFTs. So by June of last year, we were already internally geeked out on NFTs, the possibility for NFTs. You probably wouldn't have heard a lick about that on crypto Twitter at that point in time, but we were completely ready to move. And that's what led to the birth of Flamingo. We saw the opportunity, we discussed it, it bounced around the DAO, and we knew that the timing was kind of right based on this collective mindshare. I think that that's a testament to this idea of having a whole bunch of different people with skin in the game, working together, blending together their networks to build a hive mind. It seems to be in a good place to make these collective decisions and time markets right and see opportunities potentially better than a smaller group of people in a, a venture capital fund. So I'm super excited to go into Flamingo. But before we do that, I just want to go back to something you said about Silicon Valley missing some of the biggest moves here. What do you think it is about Silicon Valley that led to this blind spot? Crypto is one of the first major technology categories that didn't come out of traditional academia. Obviously, lots of academic innovations have fed into crypto, but Bitcoin started with a synonymous white paper, a or a group of developers that released it into the wild on a message board, mailing list, not even a message board. So I think it's always been a little non-traditional. And I think a lot of the entrepreneurs and innovators that work in the crypto space don't necessarily fit the classic archetype of a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. They may not have gone to the best schools. They may be located outside of the Valley. They may be working on remote teams. At least pre-COVID was not the norm. They may not have gone to the most illustrious schools. So that combination, I think, has always made it a little bit of an oddity to some Silicon Valley type investors. It's not that they haven't backed amazing teams. They have. I just think there's been some that have slipped through the filter, which I'm sure always happens, but it seems to happen at a higher rate when it comes to crypto. I think the other thing is for the projects that they did back, in many ways, they seemed obvious to plenty of folks in the space that they needed capital and support. And so it didn't make much sense that that capital shouldn't come from the community that they were interacting with, the folks that were actually going to use the platforms or projects or DAP or whatever they're developing and or continue to provide longer term support. So I think that was another thing that, that fed into our thinking. So an example of that is the Lao is, you guys are meeting regularly. It's June of 2020. You're excited about NFTs. You decide to launch the next DAO, Flamingo. That launches in October 2020. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. See if I got this right. Because if this math is correct as an investor, this is quite insane is probably the only word. So in October of 2020, the membership was 60 ETH. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And ETH was $300 back then. So it was $18,000 to get in in US dollars. And so if you look at a membership today, 
if you wanted to get into Flamingo, what would it cost you if a member wanted to sell you a seat? Right now, you know, new members are coming in at 3,000 ETH. So if I do this math right, 3,000 ETH on an original investment of 60 ETH is a 50x return in a year. That's interesting. Now, if you had bought Ethereum and put the same amount of money, you would have got a 14x return. But if you look at what you guys have done in ETH, by my math, you've had over a 700x return, valuing you guys at over a billion dollars in one year from an original investment of less than a couple million dollars. These DAOs are interesting, and Flamingo is a great example. It started as a DAO that just collected NFTs, but it's expanding into different categories. It's now supporting artists. It's generating revenue. And I do think it's got the best collective mind of NFT collectors and fanatics and supporters out there. And the collection of NFTs that Flamingo has collected, if you believe this thesis that NFTs are not going away as a category, there's going to be billions, if not trillions of NFTs. It's iconic. It has some of the largest collections of CryptoPunks, Bored Apes, Autoglyphs, and a whole host of other amazing NFTs. And you just can't recollect those. That's one of the unique characteristics of NFTs. Because of their non-fungible nature, it's not like you can gain exposure to this collection outside of joining Flamingo. We're going to jump into the legal side, obviously, and understand the difference between this and an LLC. But before we get there, I think the secret sauce of DAOs, in particular from my watching of Flamingo from the outside, it's this idea of a hive mind, as you call it. First, can you just define for the audience, what is a hive mind? Because I really think this is the secret sauce that people don't focus on as much of like what makes a DAO or specifically Flamingo special. I think it's a unique characteristic of our DAOs and other DAOs that are following a similar model. We have 70 plus members, many of, of whom put their own capital at risk, and they're passionate about a particular topic. So this is what they're geeking out on. They're spending countless hours per day, even if they have other jobs, completely obsessing over NFTs, opportunities, different communities, artists, ecosystems that are creating NFTs by blending together the voices of not just a handful of people, let's say like one or two people, or maybe possibly more, which would be the normal setup inside of like a a hedge fund or a venture capital fund. It's a broader group. That broader group creates a filter about potential opportunities. So we've seen in the NFT ecosystem, plenty of projects that launch and then their price goes up and then it rapidly comes down. Those types of projects don't tend to gain traction inside of Flamingo, even though if you're an avid reader of crypto Twitter or even paying attention in the popular press, some of these projects would have hit your radar. This broader base of active participants, I think just creates a better noise to signal ratio And people are interested in different parts of the ecosystem. So we have some folks that are really focused on early NFTs and collectibles. We have other members that are really focused on generative art. And we've done a lot to support generative art, both by supporting art blocks and also by collecting a whole bunch of generative artworks. We have other folks that are focused more on this transition of digital artists into NFTs or emerging artists that are using NFTs to develop their platform. We have folks that have been diving deep into the metaverse. And that's why we set up Neon, because we realized that that was a bigger opportunity. And we're geeking out on different land or parcels or other items that can be acquired in the metaverse. We had folks that were focused on gaming and other subcategories inside that broader NFT ecosystem. So because of this broad range of coverage, it's like a brain. Different people are focused on different areas, but everybody could have an opinion on it. And you kind of get a sense of whether or not 
you're making a good or bad decision, palpably feel opportunities and whether people are excited about it. And now that we have a network of DAOs, you can see these different hive minds coming to decisions. And sometimes you get some interesting signal across all the DAOs. How does this brain work? So I'd really like to talk about the investment process. How do you source a deal? How do you think about what people would in normal investing think about as due diligence? How do you make a decision and then monitor that investment? In terms of deals, that would be more kind of in the bucket of the Lao. So supporting a project or a company or some other more venture capital-like, venture capital-styled investment. There, the deals come from all angles. All of our members have different networks that they're a part of. They know different founders. And if they hear that a project that they're interested in is raising, they'll flag it. We congregate on Discord. So they'll flag it in a new opportunities channel. And they'll circulate a little bit of information that catches one or more, more person's eye. Then either that member will schedule a time to talk to the team to get more detail and then report that back. My company, Tribute Labs, will fill in the gaps. So if no member is able to do that, we'll schedule a call and collect that information and report it back. Either based on the conversation in Discord, we also have some calls that people can voluntarily join, which are pretty well attended. We'll get a flavor of whether or not people want to move forward. If there's like a sentiment that people want to move forward, there'll be some soft polling on Discord just to get a sense and confirm it. And assuming that they want to move forward, it goes up for a formal vote. So somebody will draft up a proposal or the team will apply and describe why they need the capital. And then it goes up for a formal on-chain vote at that point in time. If more people want to support the project than not support the project during a voting window, it's seven days in the Lao, which is shorter than some of the other DAOs, then the capital is committed. And then we take steps to kind of make sure that all the legal docs and other things are in order and are authorized to settle the transaction on behalf of the members. So in the Lao, I guess, thinking about that, that sounds a lot like a venture capital model. How do you think in the way of speed that what you just described, going into a Discord saying, I have an idea, I was just talking to this founder, I like it, let's get together. How does that compare in speed to a traditional several partners at a venture capital firm having a meeting to say, we should do this deal? Before crypto, and I think a lot of VC funds that operate in crypto are moving faster, but we can come to a decision in a matter of hours if needed. People are online, they can weigh in on polling. If we need to move quick, then we can move quick. If things are slower, we can move slower and collect some more information. So just the cadence, if you look at the number of deals that the Lao has done, it's you know over 100. That's a lot for most VC funds. They're really looking at least a lot of them are looking to kind of maximize their exposure into a smaller number of bets. We take a slightly different approach where we're looking to build connections to great projects and teams. We're happy to participate in a number of different rounds and work with as many teams as we think are worthy of working with. Inside Flamingo, when it comes to a particular project in different capacities or NFT opportunity, we'll It's a similar process in the sense that people will flag either an artist or they'll flag a set of NFTs that they're interested in, and there'll be a conversation related to it, and people will get excited and will decide what the allocation should be, and then either members will acquire them or will acquire them on behalf of uh, members. One of the beautiful things about blockchain is I can look into your portfolio and see things that you've purchased. And now I'm talking about Flamingo. When I look at it, you know, you have 242 CryptoPunks, which I think makes you one of the top holders. 
you have 22 board apes. I'm curious, just how did you arrive at those allocations? Like, what was it like? Someone said, Hey, these board apes are launching. This is a good idea. Let's just throw some money at it. Or were you saying, No, we really want to meet with the founders first? Like, how do we go from, I just saw something on Twitter or my friend told me something we should get involved to sending capital from the Flamingo DAO? CryptoPunks have been around for a while. So we developed inside Flamingo just some core buckets that we were interested in collecting. So one of those buckets inside Flamingo was early NFTs. So that included things like CryptoPunks, Autoglyphs, and there's a handful of other projects. We began to look at the market and tried to get a sense of what we thought the opportunity would be. When it came to punks, we bought a handful off the bat. And then there was increasing numbers of proposals to just expand that exposure until we got to a point where we became one of the largest holders in that project. The thesis there, at least as distilling it down for members, was really that if there's going to be trillions of NFTs, at some point, people would look back to see what the really first original ones were. And there was some one-off ones, but CryptoPunks stood out as being one of those early iconic sets. And we wanted to have a pretty heavy exposure into that. For Bored Apes, Bored Apes, it's an amazing project. I think it's completely fascinating. And I think they've developed an amazing community and have an incredible roadmap. That one, I think members were a little less sure about just because of the way it was kind of released and the fact that at that point in time, there was more sets of NFTs that were getting created every day. But one member in particular was very, very interested in Board Apes and thought that we should at least have some exposure there. So we just decided to acquire a handful. And then I think we acquired a couple more after that as we began to learn a little bit more about what Board Apes was thinking about as a community and the plan for developing those sets of characters. I'm curious how the DAO actually handled that iteration from like a mechanic standpoint. So one member is really asked that they want to buy Bored Apes. They put it in the new opportunity channel. You do a vote. Maybe it's a good time to talk about rough consensus and getting a quorum of what it means to say, okay, we're interested. But how does that one member with that view push the group? And then how does the group push back to arrive at a number, whatever it is, we're going to buy 20 because that's an appropriate allocation. Like how did that conversation happen? Were you voting? Yes, we'll do it. It'll be somewhere between, do you want to buy 10 to 20, 20 to 30, 30 to 50? How do you actually think about, okay, this is the right amount of capital to allocate for this idea? In Flamingo, there's just a top level buckets of allocations. So we use that as a barometer. And we usually think in not in terms of number of items, but the total allocation in ETH. The DAOs are all denominated in ETH. The thought being, if we can't beat ETH, we might as well just hold it. When it comes to board apes, going back to my recollection, I actually think a member may have minted them on behalf of Flamingo and then just got reimbursed. But when it came to kind of re-upping, I think at that point in time, we had some contact with the Board Apes team. We learned a little bit more about it. People were getting more excited. And both in Discord and on calls, we began to think about Board Apes more. We've collectively been really interested in this notion of NFTs anchoring a new set of IP that either Hollywood or other creators would use. So we've also collected items like this amazing character, Aku, which Micah Johnson put together. So that was part of a kind of an ongoing conversation inside of Flamingo. And so when Bored Apes began to signal that they didn't just want to be just a set of characters, but really wanted to have their community develop more and more IP related to the ecosystem, it just fit into this broader thesis that had emerged over a course of months. To your question, it's hard to kind of pinpoint a process. It's more like a conversation, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense, a feeling. And then 
at some point during a discussion, we'll be like, oh, well, we want to increase our exposure. To, let's say board apes, how much should we allocate to this? And somebody would say something like 20, 30, et cetera. And then that would go up for some sort of vote. Yeah. And then instead of operating via quorum, to your other point, we operate via rough consensus. So that enables us to move fast. The basic thesis is if there's more people paying attention, if something goes up for vote, the folks that are paying attention can weigh in and you're kind of trusting those people that are, are weighing in, they're going to make the right decisions. So instead of waiting to hit like some sort of quorum threshold, you just kind of move forward a default towards action as opposed to waiting to hit a sufficient threshold or voting threshold. You're deploying capital. You have a lot of ETH. You're thinking in allocations to ETH. And so it's kind of like, okay, how much does something cost at this point? We want to have a 1% or 2% position. Let's put it into it. And people vote yes. How do you think about selling something? Does Flamingo sell? I mean, I know you've done some auctions, but are you actively selling to rebalance the portfolio? Another example that I looked at was in art blocks in particular, where you guys are really big, you have 24 ringers from Dimitri and five Fidenzas from Tyler Hobbs. And I, at first I thought of that and I was like, oh, are they saying they like ringers more than Fidenzas? But maybe if I'm hearing more about your process, it was at that point in time, we allocated this much ETH to this project and that much ETH to that next project. But is there ever a rebalancing of, oh, we should sell some ringers to buy a Fidenza or we should sell to raise liquidity to, you know, buy whatever the new artist is coming down the line? We've only done one sale in Flamingo, and that was a unique opportunity. We were able to auction off an autoglyph via Sotheby's, and we just like this core idea of a DAO interacting with a traditional auction house. All these decisions when it comes to how to manage any assets that have been collected, it's really up to members. There doesn't yet seem to be a desire to exit out and sell any of the NFTs that we've collected. I think more broadly, subject to the normal caveats that we are aspiring to do this above board, I do think that the members of all the DAOs would like to explore some form of tokenization, assuming that we're able to dot I's and cross T's on the regulatory front. So I think that that's a more logical path forward. These are less buy and sell type vehicles and much more collect and hold, at least at this point. And so one thing I thought about was maybe you can talk about if a member is not happy with the decision. I love this term rage quitting. So this idea of rage quitting is you could just say, okay, we're leaving. There's capital that's been undeployed. I can take it with me. What happens when you're at a point like Flamingo, where it looks like most of the money has been deployed? How does someone express a negative view that they're not happy or, or that they want to leave? The members can sell their interest to any other members at any point in time without any other member approval. If they want to sell their interest to a third party, they can subject member approval or new capital can be brought in by basically diluting everybody. Those are kind of the three current paths. If somebody is unhappy, they also have the right to rage quit, a colorful term that's basically like an automatic redemption right. So they can redeem their pro-rata portion of any undeployed capital. Their interest is retired. It's basically canceled. With Flamingo, one person rage quit at the very beginning. It just wasn't the right match for them. But once these DAOs get moving, most people are there, just stick around, add into the collective mindshare. If they want to exit, they oftentimes or sometimes will look to sell that to another member or possibly find a third party that's interested in it. 
We have a mutual friend, Chris Cable, who once told me this phrase, with Web3, you can encode incentives. And that idea has been rattling around in my head. And when I think about the DAOs and the incentive structure, one thing I start to think about is incentives that could lead to negative behavior. So how do you prevent someone from front-running the DAO? So you're in this vote and you know you're about to do something. How do you prevent a member from going out there and buying it in front of the DAO? I mean, that's really enforced by norms. So we had one member that tried to do that. There was an opportunity, was presented to the DAO. The member tried to snipe that opportunity from the seller. And once it was identified that that happened, it led to a conversation about whether that was appropriate. The general consensus amongst the members was that was not. If there's an opportunity, the DAO should have the first swipe at it. If it's a project or something else that you're interested in, then you should just wait till the DAO's done with what it needs to do in order to collect the NFTs before you decide to move forward. And so that soft concept has been enforced. The members also have the right outside of a member rage quitting to rage kick somebody to basically exit them out of the vehicle. That kind of serves as a backstop to prevent some of those bad activities. I'd say more broadly though, operating these DAOs, people develop relationships. It's more than just investment vehicle. It's also a bit like a club. People develop relationships, they meet up in person, they hang out, and they're passionate about a particular topic. So there's kind of a shared interest. We were fortunate enough, a bunch of members, to go down to Marfa, Texas, where Artblocks had the unveiling of a physical space that they acquired there, displayed some of the works. And one of the members remarked that probably inside the members of Flamingo, they have more in common than they do with their families. Like these are people that are passionate about something that they really care about. They're dedicating a lot of their time. So that also forces good behavior. My second incentive, which may be this kind of family bond between members gets around, is this idea of freeloading. So you have these 70 members, five to 10 quit their job. They're working 24-7. They're on Discord, Telegram. They're just bringing ideas bringing more assets and ideas to the DAO versus someone who might have a, not for any fault of their own, but a really busy job. They can't commit the same time. How do you think about the problem of freeloading in DAOs? Yeah, it's something that people have been worried about. I think it's present in any organization, whether it's a DAO or whether it's a more traditional organization, you can't completely preclude a free rider problem. I mean, you could get a job inside of a company and never do any work and just Mm -hmm. kind of skate by, especially in large corporations, or by the time they catch up to the fact that you're free riding, it's been years or months or however long that may take. So we don't have much rules just in terms of participation. But what we found is people are actively engaged because it's something that they're interested in. And even folks that may not be particularly active on Discord or may not join calls, they're still lurking. They're still processing the information. And occasionally they just raise up their hand and present opportunities I mentioned that Aku project before, which is a really fascinating project. It's a black astronaut that's being released as an NFT, and that's anchoring IP that's ultimately going to be turned into a, a movie or some other form of Hollywood media, which is pretty amazing. That came from a member who only kind of periodically participates. But when he does, people pay attention because they know what he's bringing to the table is usually pretty interesting and great. That's why why I think these DAO structures are interesting. They allow for passive participation where you can have an outsized impact even if you're not able to do it full-time. This mm-hmm. was a project and a team in that instance where I think he had a personal connection to what's going on there, which is great. There's definitely a little bit of free riding, but I'd say 
offset by enabling some flexibility just in terms of how people operate, where you don't need to do this as a full-time job. You can do this part-time. You can catch up on things on at night or on the weekend if you feel like it. And at the same time, you're bonded together because you have an interest in this. In the case of Flamingo, it looks like that interest has increased in value. So you're incentivized to kind of pay attention. Right now, as you're putting DAOs into this idea of this legal structure, you have a maximum of 99 members. I'm curious, this idea of Dunbar's number that one person can only maintain a certain amount of relationships with a certain number of people. If there was no rules on the number, to you, what's the maximum amount of people that could work in a DAO before it would break down? Yeah, I don't know the answer to this. This is something I've been puzzling just internally and thinking through. I do think that there's like a Dunbar numbers with DAOs. People have been fascinated with this notion of wisdom of a crowd. I wonder if that's too broad. And really to get better decision-making, you need to broaden from like a small set of people passionate about a topic to a larger number. I could see it working pretty well up to, let's say like two, 300 people. But beyond that, I'd worry that you're just not getting the right noise to signal ratio. Another concept I've been thinking a lot about, it's almost like a House versus Senate concept, where maybe you have broader wisdom of the crowd and a broader, more public group that's able to kind of filter opportunities. But you have a smaller group that, let's say, like up to two, 300, that kind of approves it. Maybe that's a better structure for these types of things. I'm not 100% sure yet. I think we have to figure that out. And the only way to do that is through experimentation. I guess another kind of the inverse of that question is how many DAOs do you think a single person can participate in effectively? Like I'm in lots of discords and I'm just trying to manage information. They're not even DAOs. And it just feels like a faucet coming at you. If I was connected to these people, if I felt like I was part of nine families, I think I would just feel a tremendous amount of burnout of trying to commit to all these different DAOs. So how many DAOs do you think one person could or should be a part of? Yeah, I mean, we have members that are part of all nine, and I think they kind of float and their attention will focus on different DAOs at different points in time, or they have a, a skill set that they like to add to each one of them. Your surface area, I think, is a bit broader with DAOs, but I do think there's like a natural breaking point. I don't know exactly what that, that is yet, but we have some folks that participate in two to three DAOs. We have other folks that, honestly, they participate in all nine. To get your perspective on other DAOs that have been created, the first I wanted to just get your opinion on is with the DeFi DAOs like Compound and Uniswap. These DAOs have incredibly large treasuries and they're generating a lot of revenue, but I'm surprised at the pace at which the money is being deployed. And I'd be curious to get your take on why do you think that is the way it is? Yeah, I mean, I think DeFi DAOs are fascinating. They're a bit different than what we've been supporting in our network. I think the broad concept around DAOs that we're seeing in DeFi is how do we collectively manage open source technology that's highly autonomous or fairly autonomous in nature and do so away with broad community support. I view them as the next iteration of software foundations. So I think in Web 1 and Web 2, and even before that, we saw different open source projects organized as software foundations, whether that's Linux or MediaWiki, which supports Wikipedia or a handful of other initiatives they organize as a software foundation. With DeFi DAOs, we're starting to see a new way to do that, which is using these DAO-like structures to get broad community buy-in and support. And I think that's great in legal academic literature and folks that really think about governance. There's been a long push to have more stakeholders involved, to build more sustainable organizations. Um, DeFi DAOs are kind of the most extreme example of that. And I think in the long run, they'll prove to be pretty stable and make pretty good decisions. 
So I'm excited about those opportunities and hope that those experiments continue and are given room to continue in the US. When it comes to the treasury management, I am sure that they would love to deploy them more. I think part of the concern is regulatory. I think there's some naughty questions when it comes to tax, when it comes to what's the nature of these assets that may have precluded some of the DAOs from deploying this capital in earnest. I think the second piece is just DAO tooling. It's still pretty early when it comes to DAO tooling, and there's a lot more that needs to be done in order to make it easier for participants in DAOs to vote and to have some sort of on-chain activity that occurs after that fact. And then I think the last thing is just core governance. I think many of these DeFi DAOs are amazing, but the teams that put it together were software engineers, and I think they have to go through this iterative process of governance to know what's the right way to kind of build, construct, and have these disparate groups work together. I do think that quorum-based voting, which is present in a number of DeFi DAOs, is probably precluding their ability to move quickly. If I think about the smaller DAOs, one thing on the legal side I'm interested in is this concept of the wrap DAO versus a non-wrap DAO. So if you could just kind of explain your decision of you structured a DAO, but it's still rooted in US law versus a DAO that might not be structured like that. If you pull together assets and have a bunch of people participating and the aim is to make a profit or a loss in the US and most parts of Europe and other parts of the advanced economies around the globe would view that as a partnership. Partnerships are amazing. They're default legal structure, but there's some really naughty parts about partnerships. One is if you participate in a partnership, you don't enjoy a limitation of liability. What that means is if you participate, you're not just putting the assets you contributed to the organization at risk or the assets that you may be able to obtain from that organization at risk, but also your other assets. So if you have deep pockets, participating in a partnership is usually not that great. Number two, since you don't have any organizational documents, if there's an issue or risk, some sort of event that occurs, you don't really know what's going to govern outside of these default partnership laws that are in the US or other parts of the globe. Partnerships are amazing. They've been around for a long time, but they carry with them certain risks. That's something that many lawyers and legal academics have thought about for quite some time. Even before Ethereum launched at some events at MIT, right around the time Ethereum was launching, we began to think about these questions in a series of workshops. If you had a DAO, how should it be structured? And one concept that emerged was, well, maybe you could anchor the DAO in LLC of some sort. LLCs are something that was invented in the United States, in Wyoming, in the late 1970s. They blended together the best parts of a partnership and the best parts of a corporation into a hybrid structure. And you can organize them, for the most part, any way that you choose using a contract. There's some constraints, but it's a pretty flexible in terms of its application. You can have managers, you can have no managers, you can vary the rules. You have a lot of flexibility just in terms of what you want to do with it. So naturally, we thought that that could be one potential solution to help bootstrap some of these DAO structures. We applied this in the Lao and our other DAOs. Some other DAOs that are focused on investments like MetaCartel Ventures also did the same thing. And it's worked pretty well. It means that if I have a lot of capital, I can participate in these DAOs and know that I'm not going to put all of my assets at risk. We can file taxes. We can get a tax ID number. We can deal with the compliance pieces. And so it works pretty well for the things that we're doing. What it doesn't work really well for some of these broader open source foundations, modern rifts on open source foundations that we're seeing in, in DeFi. So it's a partial solution, it's not a complete solution. And so when I think about the structure you've created, is it possible to do all of this without crypto? 
as a base currency. So if I think about starting a DAO with friends where I love the communication, the hive mind, I want to come together with the smartest people I know and strangers to work on a common good. Is there any reason why you couldn't just do this with US dollars? The friction that US dollars presents is going to make it harder to administer such that it's going to force some sort of centralization and some sort of managing member or partner just to kind of facilitate all that. By reducing the friction it takes to put things up for vote, by reducing the friction that it takes to settle transactions, it's just much, much easier to do it in crypto. And I think that's where you're going to get the efficiencies. I also think if we zoom out in a couple quarters or a couple years, a lot of actions that you're going to see these DAOs take are going to happen directly via Discord votes. And I just think you're not going to be able to do that with more traditional infrastructure. It's just going to be too slow. So as an example, and we already have this running on a, some test nets, with Flamingo, if there's a particular project that people are interested in, they'll be able to basically identify that project, identify the smart contract related to that project, and just thumbs up whether or not they want to like sweep a floor or something like that. I think you'd have a hard time doing that with more traditional financial infrastructure. Yeah, I don't think we could sweep the floor on a bunch of physical pieces of art at the Sotheby's auction. You don't think say, so? Yeah, that'd be just great. take one through 10, please, for my group of friends. I wanted to go just another step further on this legal side is this idea of securities law. I think it's interesting that you have this governance token and these partnership interests, but I think a lot about like the duck of if it sounds like a duck and looks like a duck. And some of these DAOs, it just feels like the things they're creating I'm not sure how they're not securities. And so I guess, where are we on a regulatory front with, I know you've done some great work in Vermont and Wyoming on the LLC front, but as far as securities laws go, are people reaching out to you? Or is there a group of errands working with regulators to try to help understand how to categorize these? Yeah, I mean, the SEC already characterized interests in DAOs. They weighed in on the DAO itself and issued a 21A report. So it was a non-binding report just outlining the previous administration's position when it comes to interests in DAO or DAO-like structures. In that instance, they found that those interests were securities in part because there was one holder that owned a disproportionate amount of it, and two, there was some centralized decision-making. So I think if a DAO has centralized decision-making, if it has one or more significant holders and they're able to make decisions or the bulk of decisions, then I think there's a risk that the interest in that DAO will be a security. Our DAOs are much flatter. Most of the members own one or 2% of the DAO, so they can't independently really move any capital. There's no general partner or somebody that has more information than everybody else. It's all publicly available in Discord, on-chain, different governance votes, which everybody has access to. So there's an argument, and time will tell whether or not this argument's successful, that the interest in the DAO look, at least in our DAOs, look a little bit more like partnership interests, which are not considered securities as opposed to securities. The whole point of securities laws is to narrow information asymmetries between a group of managers or executives or people that have more information than the owners, capital allocators, or folks that could be hurt by this smaller group with more information. So if you can develop structures that kind of narrow those information asymmetries, there's a chance and there's case law that supports this, that the interests in that type of a vehicle will not be considered a security. How far away do you think we are or what would have to happen for there to be a time where I could buy $1,000 of Flamingo and be an outsider who could like buy part of that partnership unit in the future? I'm hoping it's only a couple of years away. If these structures are able to generate 
better returns than what we have today. And if they're able to work better than more traditional GPLP structures, I do not see why we wouldn't want to move in this direction in the US. If we can build and support the best vehicles to increase return in order to efficiently deploy capital, why would we not want to do that? It's the same thing as Bitcoin. So when Coinbase started, they only listed Bitcoin. They took a more conservative approach to it. There was plenty of other tokens at that point in time, and they chose not to list those. We got some clarity that Bitcoin was a commodity, at least some early indication of that, and that other assets probably were not going to be considered securities and more and more assets were listed on Coinbase. I think it's going to be the same thing with DAOs. We're going to see some models which are securities. We're going to see other models which are not. And hopefully we'll start gravitating towards the latter so we can have the more fluid exchange of not just assets tied to a particular DeFi protocol or other DAP, but also these vehicles too. So Open Law, now now Tribute Labs, is kind of the gold standard of setting these up. And one thing I'm curious about as you begin this next chapter with Tribute is, do you view Tribute as the famous tiger management hedge fund with Julian Robertson, where there's tiger cubs, these are the nine, you are curating what the next DAO will be? How do I, if I'm not in Lao or Flamingo or, or Neon, if I wanted to start a DAO, but I'm like, Aaron knows how to do this the right way, how would I build something like that today? All the DAOs that we support are really directed by our members. So we view ourselves as service providers, as cartilage for what our members in the ecosystem wants to do. And increasingly, that will be more unified. So all the DAOs I mentioned before, they were really the brainchild of a member or a group of members that just thought it was a great opportunity. So at some point, we just launched a digital fashion house called Red DAO. That came from a member who just thought the timing was right. He discussed that with a whole bunch of other folks and people agreed. And we were asked to just help support that. And so our role is really that of support. We're filling the gaps to make sure that people can continue to work in these structures. We joke that we've built like a reverse mullet. We handle uh, all the business in the back so people can have a party in the front. And I think that that's our approach. We've been adding about one to two DAOs per month. So I think that if you zoom out to this network of DAOs that we're supporting, it's going to continue to grow. And at the end of the day, you're going to have a broad network of capital allocators that are able to filter new opportunities, rapidly deploy capital into those opportunities, and hopefully make a profit as part of that process. And if you start thinking about that, in our minds, we're really hoping to support the digital version of Silicon Valley or Wall Street or Hollywood, or possibly all three. So that's kind of our broad vision. So I'm sure based on your background expertise, you get a lot of outside requests to explain how does this all work? Not from just people like me, but crypto native folks that want to set up their own DAO, outside folks that want to understand like what is going on in governance. I'm just curious, what are the type of outside calls you're hearing from the traditional world? What are those conversations like? Yeah, I mean, I'd say DAOs are definitely catching a whole bunch of people's attention. Silicon Valley, so lots of investors or other folks that see different opportunities when it comes to making their lives more efficient, are reaching out. Lots of folks in Hollywood are thinking about DAOs and how they could possibly be used to hold IP or whether NFTs kind of as a category can anchor the next generation of content in Hollywood. We see people in Wall Street that are trying to reimagine how hedge funds may work and whether they're better able to get different folks working together so that they can tackle some of the more financial-minded opportunities 
we're starting to see people thinking about this when it comes to fashion. So other categories of media or creative endeavors, not just art, which was kind of the first cadence of first use case uh, around NFTs. It's really coming from all over. Regulators are trying to think about this. I think they're are gnawing their way through DeFi. I imagine they'll start looking at some of these other use cases next. So it's a tremendous amount of interest, which is great, especially for somebody that's been around crypto for a while. It seems like it's all coming together. If you're a person who's interested in this and you want to get involved and experience this type of collective decision-making, what would you recommend is the best way to get involved? Reaching out to a DAO that you're interested in, even if you may not be able to participate in our DAOs and deploy capital into it, there's other ways to get involved to help out. As the DAOs in our network are maturing, we're looking for different ways to have people participate and support. So that's one avenue. I think there's other DAO experiments which are a little bit more free-formed and YOLO, which I think is great. We need that experimentation. So that's another place to look. Just be careful and make sure that you're participating with people that you think are well-intentioned and are trying to do the right thing. It's really just like hopping into the conversation. I think that's the best part about crypto, Web3, the barriers to entry are really low and you really just have to put an effort in order to begin to make a name and, and have some impact. Yeah, I think it's very well said that it's easy to get in, even though the learning curve feels really steep. And so when people ask me, I'm just like, nobody really knows what they're doing. Everyone's just trying to figure it out. But the collective energy and support of the people in this ecosystem is like nothing I've ever experienced. Yeah. So Aaron, this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. In the spirit of Web3, where progress seems to achieve through an insanely fast pace, I wanted to give you a two-part question to close. First, what are you most focused on building over the next six months? And then to follow that up, what are you most excited to build over the next 10 years? Yeah, so over the next six months, we're intensely focused on DAO tooling. So we just released a new DAO framework that's inspired by the Moloch DAO framework called the Tribute DAO framework. And it's looking to reduce the cost of operating a DAO. Right now, it's very expensive due to gas costs and other costs to do that. You can't have the same Web2 experience that I think many of us are familiar with. And we think the Tribute DAO framework is set up to do that. So we're incorporating things like a gas relayer, so no end users have to pay any transaction fees. It can be paid by the DAO itself. We've rolled out some tools that will make it easier to upgrade and extend and enhance a DAO. It's a little bit like WordPress for DAOs, where you can put in plugins. We call them adapters or extensions. Expand and choose different features that you may want your community to have. And then we're also just focused on growing this network. We do think that there's an opportunity to build digital versions of Hollywood, Wall Street, and Silicon Valley. And we're hoping to explore that with the help of our, our members. So that's really what we're focused on in the next six months. And in 10 years, I personally think we're at this point, which was similar to where we were when LLCs were created in Wyoming in the late 1970s. They kind of seeped out of Wyoming and began to transform core parts of the US economy. I think in 10 years, we're going to say the same thing about DAOs. I think this idea of stitching together disparate, well-intentioned people across the internet so that they could productively work together will really show the full vision of the internet. It will move us beyond what we see today, which I think some people are naturally raising an eyebrow or a question about, into an area where we see people productively deploying capital, working together, building new things, and that's just going to accelerate growth across the board. And so I feel incredibly privileged to even play a small role in that and really hope to build this vision and bring it to fruition. I just think it's the right thing to do, number one. And 
I just think it's the right way to work. It's really fun. I think it's like hard to understate that. It's like you're working with friends that you've never met on a topic that you're super passionate about. Like what's there not to like? It's much better yeah. than working in a corporation, which is like hierarchical, bureaucratic, and, and sometimes really dry. Yeah. If you had told me that this existed and I hadn't experienced it even firsthand, I don't think I would believe you. Um, I think it's a really exciting future and I'm excited to watch you build it. Before we wrap up, is there any other things or, or that we haven't touched on that you think are worth discussing? No, I think we covered it all. Eric, I really appreciate you inviting me on. And it was great to talk about DAOs. This is awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 